Amen. We're going to come to the uh, the sermon now, and uh, for those of you that uh, are with us here for the first time, we, we, we very much welcome you, and we just want to uh, explain that a main part of our service is to hear God's word preached on. We believe as a Protestant church that God's word is the final authority. God's word is central to all that we do. And so when we sing, we sing God's word. When we pray, we pray God's word. When we read the scriptures, we read God's word. And then when the, the, the sermon is preached, what our desire is and, and what our conviction is, is that God speaks to us through his word. And so we are going through the Gospel of John. We've got to chapter uh, 17 now. And so I would encourage you all to have your, your Bibles open at this uh, chapter 17 of the Gospel of John. We've been so blessed in, in the last few chapters of, of this Gospel of John. And I don't doubt that as we carry on with the Lord's help and with the Holy Spirit, we will be continually blessed. But this chapter is, is a very special chapter of God's Word. Uh, some of the commentators that I was reading to get their thoughts on this, when, we started, when I started going forward, they were really extolling and getting excited by this chapter. Uh, J.C. Ryle, who has uh, three volumes on the, on the Gospel of John, so he's got a lot of books, a lot of devotional matter on, on the Gospel of John. When he comes to this chapter, he says this is one of the most wonderful chapters of the Bible. One of the most wonderful chapters of the Bible. And, and Bruce Milne says that this is one of the mountain peaks of the revelation in the four Gospels. And so I think we can think of it like this. We have listened over the past few weeks as we've gone through the previous chapters to one of the greatest sermons ever preached. The Upper Room Discourse, the discourse, the, the, the chat that Jesus is having to his disciples. We can view that as a sermon. He is preaching to, he is speaking to his disciples. And, and those chapters, as we have outlined for us, as we looked through abiding in Christ, as we looked through his encouragement to his disciples in his soon-to-be absence, we, we've listened to one of the greatest sermons ever preached. And, and, and now we're moving on to one of the greatest prayers that has ever been prayed. So I, I don't know if you realise this this morning of just how blessed you are. How blessed you are to have been able to read and, and go through over these last weeks one of the greatest sermons that's ever been preached. But just think of this now. You are so blessed because open before you and ringing your ears from the reading of God's word is Jesus' prayer. Jesus' prayer. And we have it for us. This is God's word. This is this chapter 17. This is Jesus' prayer. And it doesn't stop there. This prayer, as we look at it, as we explore it, as we delve into it, we'll realise that the Holy Spirit didn't just record a, a prayer for us to, 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 to see, but this prayer is actually a prayer that is for many of us here this morning. This prayer is a prayer that Jesus is praying for his own disciples. And not just the, the 11 disciples that he was with at the time, but he goes on to pray for every single disciple 
that follows on. Every believer, every true Christian has been brought into this prayer. And this prayer is Jesus praying for us. And so right at the very beginning of this sermon, as we think of this prayer, we realise that there is a separation. This prayer was not for everybody. This prayer is for all those who are believing and trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ as their Saviour. The depth, the beauty, the wonder of this prayer is exclusively for God's children. Those that have been brought into God's family. And if this morning you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your saviour, the comfort, the wonder, the delight of this chapter 17 is not yours. And that thought makes me really sad. That, That thought upsets me to think that as... This sermon is transmitted out online to to many different houses and venues around Cyprus and the world that it's actually dividing people. Those that are God's children and those that are not. And so if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your saviour, I urge you to come to him. Just as the children were told that they should confess their sins and ask for forgiveness. We all need to confess our sins and ask for forgiveness. And there is a way back to God from the dark paths of sin. That way is through the Lord Jesus Christ. And we'll come on to it in in, in more detail in a moment. But as we think of this prayer that Jesus We often think of this as Jesus' prayer before his death, before his, the passion, before being taken to the cross, before being uh, taken to the court, before being abused. And so we may be tempted to think that this prayer is overshadowed by the darkness of the moment. And that's what we might be thinking. This is, this is Jesus' prayer, as it were, in his last-ditch attempt to, to, to get through the, the horrendous moments that are ahead of him. But as we study this prayer, as we look at this prayer, we have to see it in its context. And that's, that's, what, that's what the reality of any studying of God's word. We have to see God's word in its context. When we take God's word out of context, we can get in all sorts of problems and all sorts of muddles. And so that's why preaching through a passage of scripture consecutively is really helpful because we see it in its context. And the context that we have here is of a sermon. It is of uh, a sermon, and it's probably, as I said before, one of the best sermons that's ever been preached. And so we have Jesus preaching a sermon, and then we have Jesus praying a prayer. Now, now, just as a a side note here of, of application, if you like, I know that some of you have responsibilities in teaching God's word, in, in preaching, uh, and different things like this. And, and what we see here from the Master, what we see here from Jesus, is a pattern that we have to follow. We need to follow our preaching and teaching of God's word with prayer. That's what Jesus did. The best sermon probably ever preached followed by the breast prayer probably ever prayed. Jesus' pattern was to preach and then to pray in his preaching. And an illustration of this can be like this, can't it? A mother prepares a meal for her children, for her, her, her young ones. She, she puts effort into that. She goes to the market, she gets the produce, she brings it home, she slaves over the kitchen stove and she makes this food and she presents this food and puts it on a plate and gives it to her children. 
and she's given them a whole load of very nourishing vegetables and she turns her back she may find that the children don't want to eat the vegetables because they don't appreciate the benefit and the blessing of them and they prefer to have sweets and crisps and hamburgers and things and so the mother stays there and makes sure that the children eat the food and are nourished by it and then this is what Jesus does doesn't he? he preaches this sermon and then he prays this sermon into the hearts and into the lives of his people he wants his disciples he wants us now to be affected by the sermon to be nourished by the sermon to be blessed by the sermon and so Jesus was praying his sermon into the life of his hearer. So very, very practically, for those of you that, that teach God's word, that maybe preach God's word, that are involved in that, you don't leave it just with the act of preaching and teaching. You have to take it and pray it in. And those of us that hear preaching, it's so advisable to us, it's essential to us that afterwards we pray in the preaching to our hearts and our lives and that's why we have our time on Sunday evenings together when we can talk about it and pray uh, about it but what we have here is this amazing the context is this amazing sermon that Jesus has just delivered to his disciples the 11 apostles to be and at the end of chapter 16 of verse 33 it brings it all together it brings the main conclusion and Jesus says I have said these things to you that you may have peace in the world you will have tribulation but take heart I have overcome the world in many ways this is the summary of what Jesus has just been speaking to his disciples he wants his disciples to have peace. He doesn't want his disciples to be fearful. He wants his disciples to know his blessing upon them as the situation changes, as things go on. But he's telling them that he wants them to have peace. But at the same time, in this world, they will have difficulties. They will have tribulations. They will have persecutions. And he says, take heart. I have overcome the world. Now that is the context of this prayer. This prayer isn't Jesus looking forward to a horrendous event in his life with great darkness and with great uh, apprehension and great fear. No, this is Jesus looking forward to this, what will be a dark, painful event, but looking forward to it, not in the darkness of the moment, not in the fear of the coming events, but he's looking at this, realizing that he has overcome the world. The battle has been won. Christ has overcome. And, and, and this prayer is, is a prayer of, of triumph. It's not a prayer of things going horribly wrong and, and, and get me out of this mess quickly, God. This is a prayer of absolute triumph. The darkness is real. The challenge ahead is stressful. We read elsewhere that Jesus, about this time or a little bit later, in prayer, sweats drops of blood. It is an intense moment. But it's an intense moment in the backdrop of the fact that Jesus has overcome the world. The disciples can take heart because Jesus has overcome the world. Yes, there will be tribulations, but ultimately there is peace because Christ has overcome the world. And believing friends, we would do well to have this same mindset when we pray. Yes, 
we, we may come to God stressed out, and that's maybe where you are now. You may be stressed out by your midterms. You may be stressed out by the thought of how you're going to be able to fund the rest of your education when the pandemic is having such an effect on the economy. You may be stressed out and fearful because of your parents' situation back home or your own situation here. There may be great challenges in front of you and there may be great temptations upon you and you may be feeling the difficulty of being a Christian in this day and age. But get this, take heart. I have overcome the world. That's what Jesus is saying. This is the context of how we should be praying. This is a context of how Christ was praying in this situation. He wasn't praying as a victim who was about to go to the cross and have something horrendous done to him. He was praying in the context and in the mindset of the one who has overcome the world. And when we pray, we're not praying in our own strength. We're not praying in to any strength or power that can be found in this world. It's not up to you to answer your prayers by the power of your prayers. No, you are coming to Jesus. You're coming to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords who has overcome this world. That doesn't mean the problems vanish away. But we see the problems and the challenges and the temptations of this life in the context of a God who is overcome. And this God who is overcome doesn't tell us that the tribulations won't be there. He's real about them. He's open about them. But he says he will give you peace. And he can give peace because he has overcome the world. And this is how Christ is praying. And this is how we're to pray. And this should encourage us to to, to pray big. To pray as though we are on the winning side. Because we are. And so this prayer should be a real encouragement to us in how we approach our praying. Now there's an ongoing debate about what this prayer should be called and and that often happens in the scriptures Uh, some theologians think one thing and and some people think others and and traditionally this is called the the high priestly prayer I think in in the version the ESV version that we've got the the heading for this section is that the high priestly prayer And, and, and the reason that that has been given that title is Jesus is the great high priest and Jesus, as the great high priest, is interceding for his people. He's coming and speaking on behalf of his people. Now, others are suggesting that it should be called the farewell prayer. Why the farewell prayer? Well, it is so closely connected, like I say, to the context. And that is the farewell discourse, the upper room discourse. Jesus speaking to his disciples, preparing them for his departure. Now, either way, whether we call it the high priestly prayer or whether we call it the farewell discourse, there are some things that everybody agrees on and has to agree on. And that was, it was Jesus praying to God the Father. It was Jesus praying to God the Father. We were telling the, ch- the children, weren't we, that the, the idea of prayer is chatting to God, speaking to God. And here is Jesus and he is speaking to God. That, that, that's how he addresses the, the, the prayer. Father, uh, Father is used six times throughout this prayer of him speaking to God the Father. But at the same time as Jesus was speaking to God, we realise that this was what we could call a corporate prayer. Because it was a prayer that was in the hearing and for the benefit of the disciples. And that, that brings us into it, doesn't it? That's why we have it recorded here for us. Jesus, as he was speaking, he was speaking to God the Father. But there was a benefit of this being a corporate open spoken prayer 
that the disciples were listening in on. Jesus wasn't just someone who was preaching and teaching to his disciples. He was someone who was praying for them. And what a great encouragement that must have been for them as, as they got to the end of this sermon, as, as they heard those, those great words, these things I say to you that in me you may have peace. And they were, yes, we want this peace. And then they hear those words, in this world you'll have tribulation. And it's like a great high and then a great low. And then this but, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. And then straightway after that, he is then opening his heart and praying for his disciples. And they could hear it. And and they were involved with it. And, And it must have been a great, great encouragement to them. Now, first and foremostly, our praying is for God and is to God. But there are Times when we have times of corporate prayer. Times when we are led in prayer in the service. Times when we have prayer meetings together and our brothers and sisters lead us in prayers. Now, we should in those situations first and foremostly be talking to God. We need to get that right because it's so easy to think, no, we're, we're praying to the people no, or for the people. You're not. You're praying to God. But at the same token, there is a benefit to those who are listening. But it's only going to be a benefit if they are listening. Christian friends, you are only going to benefit from the corporate prayers from the pulpit, from the prayer meeting, if you are listening, if you are engaging with them. That doesn't mean they'll only get answered if you're listening. I'm not saying that for a moment. But if you want to be blessed by hearing that prayer, if you want to be able to say amen to that prayer and draw close to God in that prayer yourself, you have to be Listening. Can you imagine John's gospel without this chapter? Can you imagine if John hadn't been listening to this prayer so he couldn't record it? Where, where would the, the blessing and the delight and the privilege of this great chapter have been if he wasn't involved in corporate prayer and listening? And so humanly speaking, we can say it's a good job that John was listening. The Holy Spirit helped him and inspired him and brought this together. But I think there's a point here that that you will only be blessed by corporate prayer if you are engaging with them and listening to them. And so, friends, we have to work at it. It's a battle. It's a battle when someone else is praying for you to listen and pray along with it. And why do I know that? Because I know that battle myself. But it's a battle that we need to have in, in, in times of corporate prayer. I'm sure you've had yourself and you've been, and you got to the amen, you thought to yourself, what am I saying amen to? Your mind's wandered off on the shopping list. Your mind has wandered off on your exam preparation. Your mind has wandered off on this or that thought. And so we have, we have, we have a battle. But also, those of you that are leading in prayers, Those of you that are leading corporate prayers, you need to be sensitive to the fact that other people are listening. And very practically, this means that if you go on too long, if you are too dry, if you are too quiet, if you are mumbling, if you are incoherent, if your thoughts are all disordered, you'll make the job of those listening so much harder. And so we have a responsibility. And this prayer of Jesus is beautifully laid out. Three parts. We, we can see it and we can look at it and, and just see a, a flow of it through. And, and obviously because he was speaking, he wasn't mumbling it because they've recorded it. And it's here for us. And so yes, as we listen to prayers, we have a responsibility to connect with them 
to resist the devil from wandering thoughts, to, 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 to connect to it and draw close to God in the prayer. But also those of you that lead in prayer, those of you that pray at prayer meetings, you need to be sensitive to those who are listening and participating as well. And, and those very practical points that I mentioned, we need to take to heart and, and to have with us. There's lots of very practical application in this passage. And in some ways we could almost look at this prayer as being a model prayer to aspire to. We have to be, we have to be careful. And there's, there's, there's two main observations I want to make at this stage before I want to make some thoughts about why we need to be careful about using this as, as, as a model prayer. The two observations as we go through this prayer... There's two things that we can just all take away from it immediately. Jesus was praying for the glory of God. And Jesus was predominantly praying for others. And our prayers need to be saturated in that thought. Praying for the glory of God and praying for others. And we can connect with that prayer in that sense, and that could be a model for us to aspire to. But before we get too carried away of thinking of this as, as a model prayer, this isn't the Lord's Prayer that's recorded in other parts of the Scripture, that is there as a pattern to teach us how to pray. This is, this is different. This is Christ praying. This is him opening his heart. And sure, there are examples and models and things we can learn from it, but this isn't a model prayer first because Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. That's who's praying. The second person of the Trinity. The Son of God is praying, and we are not. You are not. I am not Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. We're not part of the Godhead. Yes, for sure, we're brought into God's family. And yes, for sure, we can talk to God as our Father because of the adoption that's been brought to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. But we are not the deity. And Jesus here is praying as the deity, as God, to God the Father. And because he is the Son of God, Jesus is totally holy and righteous. And we're not. And you see, interestingly, in this prayer, there is no confession Talking to children, chat. Prayer is chatting to God. What's the first C? Chat. Confession. You see, as the second person of the Trinity, as the holy and righteous Son of God, no confession is needed. But so much through our own praying, confession is needed. And, and this prayer is a, a prayer of requests and not petitions. It's subtle, you have to listen carefully to this. And, and the secret of, of this is very much in the original language that, 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 that's going on here. So please do listen to this because we, we're seeing here a language of requests and not a language of Petition, And I'm going to hopefully, with the Lord's help and looking into this, and you're listening carefully, that we will, we will get what this subtle difference is. Uh, a petition is appealing to an authority in respect for a particular cause. So, so a petition is appealing to God, the Father, to forgive us for our sins. A petition is appealing to God our Father to provide us for our needs. A petition is appealing to God the Father to help us in a certain situation. A, a request is different. A, a, a request here is, is, is seen as asking. An, an act of politely or formally asking for something. Not, not appealing to, but asking for. And, and, and the original word 
that, that Jesus uses in this chapter to refer to his asking is that of uh, a request. And in verse 9, in verse 15, and in verse 20, we see Jesus asking for things. And, and in the original language, that is a particular word, eretaho, and that is to interrogate, or by implication, to request. So throughout this prayer that Jesus is making, he is making requests, he is asking. But if you go back into chapter 15, or go back into chapter 16, and in chapter 15 we, we are told to ask, the disciples are told to ask in verse 7 and in verse 16, and then in chapter 16 in verse uh, 23, in verse 24, and in verse 26, they've been told to ask. And when they're told to ask there, when they're told to, to pray there, a different word is being used. Uh, and that is, that is to ask in a genitive case, or to, 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 to beg, or to crave, or to make petition. So, so Jesus is teaching his disciples to make petitions. And yet when he is praying himself, he is making requests. And, and this is really underlined if you want to see uh, the, 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 the use of both these words together in, in one verse, in one sentence. In John chapter 16 and verse 22, it reads, In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that and do I not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf? And, uh, and although in our translation here we have in that day you will ask and in that day I will ask, when you look at the original words there behind it, we have a difference. You will ask the disciples the, the word that means make petition. And I will ask the word that is to request. So, so what am I trying to say here? Well, well, Jesus, as the Son of God, prays in a different way to us. We have to appeal and make petitions. And Christ Jesus asks and makes requests of the Father. And so practically, what does, that, what does that mean? Well, it just underlines this huge difference between Jesus and us. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is in the Godhead. And Jesus, when he prays and comes to God, he is coming to God the Father and he's asking. And when we come, yes, we can come to a Father. Yes, we can come boldly. Yes, we must come in Jesus' name. But we must come reverently. Realizing that we're not asking or telling God what to do. But we're making appeals and we're making petitions to him. I get very nervous when people make declarations. And people make demands. And people tell God what to do. God wants to hear us. He wants us to pray. He wants us to open ourselves up. He wants us to, to cast our burdens upon him. They're things he wants. But we have to come in this right way. We come by way of making petitions to an authority through the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord Jesus Christ, because he is the Son of God, doesn't have to make petitions in that way. He asks and he comes straight. And, and so this should just really help us in, 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 in our attitude of how we come in prayer, to becoming humbly, to coming realising that we are coming to God the Father through the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ has access to God the Father completely. We come to God the Father through the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. He intercedes on our behalf. Here he is as the high priest and the high priestly prayer interceding on the behalf of his people.
Well, this prayer is divided essentially into three parts. Uh, we, we see it divided there. And as I said earlier, we, we need to be conscious of how we pray corporately. So there needs to be a structure. And Jesus has an absolute structure here. Jesus prays for himself, verses 1 to 5. And then Jesus prays for the apostles, 6 to 19. And then Jesus prays for us, that is, all believers. As I said earlier, all believers. He prays for us from verses 20 to 26. Now, while this prayer is divided into three parts, there's a common thread that ties all these three parts together, and that is God's glory. This prayer is about God being glorified. And that that ties in Jesus' prayer for himself. That ties in Jesus' prayer for the apostles. That ties Jesus' prayer in for us. Because he's bringing it all together. Glory is the main, one of the main themes of the Gospel of John. Uh, the, the, the word glory, glorify, is mentioned 42 times uh, throughout this. And, and it's unequivocally the main theme of this first part of the prayer. And it's the first part of this prayer that we will be spending the rest of our time and our thoughts in this morning. And, and, and to that concept of glory glorifying that there are five mentions in five verses and so we can take a step back and we say this is about God being glorified this is about glory Uh, uh, and and so what does what does this glory and glorified mean And, and, and Jesus explains right at the very beginning in this first verse he says father the hour has come And this gives us a clue of how Jesus is going to be glorified so that God can be glorified. We we see here in our first heading, if you like, as we get into the main section, is Jesus is glorified. And, And how is Jesus to be glorified? Well, this is built in in this statement, the hour has Come. The phrase, the hour has, keeps on appearing through this gospel. And I'm sure that you will remember back to right at the very beginning when we were looking to this book and, and, and we, we, we read the hour has not yet come, right in the first chapter. And then moving on, we, we go to the wedding at Cana. And, and Jesus says that his hour has not yet come. And then we read of various occasions in uh, chapter 8 and chap- uh, and later on where his enemies want to lay his hands on him. But they can't because his hour has not yet come. We see that in chapter 7 and in chapter 8. And so there is an hour that is coming. And, and the hour was coming when his enemies were wanting to do something with him. And, and Jesus explains in greater depth in chapter 12 what this is. Chapter 12 and verse 23, Jesus answered them and said, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And then he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And we're getting this clue here that Jesus' glorification as it's seen in the first verse here, is about his work on the cross. Jesus' glorification is his work on the cross. The hour has come. The hour is about there. Jesus is about to be uh, betrayed and, and taken captive and put in that mock court situation and then nailed to the tree. And Jesus' death on the cross is how he's going to be glorified. Jesus' death on the cross is how God is going to be glorified through Jesus. And we see in verse 4 that God is glorified by Jesus having accomplished, and this is in Jesus' words, the work that you gave me to do. Jesus is glorified by his work on the cross. 
Jesus is glorified by the work that God gave him to do. God sent the Lord Jesus Christ to this world with a task to do. And the ultimate part of the task was to die on the cross to bear the punishment and the sons of his people. But the lead up of that needed him to live a perfect life. God needed a perfect sacrifice. Because if Christ had sinned, then he wouldn't be a perfect sacrifice. He'd have to bear the wages of his own sins. Jesus did not deserve the wages of sins to be placed upon him because he did the work of the Father. We see the work of the Father throughout the Gospel. He keeps mentioning this. He he does the miracles. He does the preaching and the teaching. And and he's living this pure and righteous and perfect life. And he's doing the work that the Father gave him to do. Jesus came to live a sinless life, doing the will of the Father, brought glory to God. But we also see in in verse 5 that Jesus will be glorified when he rose from the dead and ascended and to be with the Father. And and we see that in so much of his teaching earlier in, in that sermon. And he's telling his disciples he's going to be with the Father. And, and, and he says in this verse 5 that he will glorify me in your own presence. Jesus is going to be glorified when he goes and sits at the right hand of God. Now we have to remember this, that Jesus is sat at the right hand of God as a man. The way has been made for mankind to come into the presence of God. And to enjoy the glory of heaven because of what Jesus has done. And Jesus is being glorified in God's own presence. That means the work on the cross has satisfied the wrath of God. That means that Jesus' work on earth was good enough to pay the price for his sins. Jesus was going to be glorified with the Father. There's also another remarkable fact of Jesus being glorified that we see in verse 5. And that is that before time began, God and Jesus were glory. In some ways you could say, what is glory? Glory is to be God. God is glory. And in this verse 5 it says, Glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. Jesus was glorified before the world existed. What what an amazing thought. And, and, And what's quite incredible by this is this. Before time began, God was glorified. And Jesus enjoyed that glory. But nobody else could see the wonder of this glory. But because this world was created, because sin came in, because of the atonement that was brought on the cross, we can see something of the glory of God. The glory of God that was before time is now the glory of God that Christ is enjoying. And God was glorified when Jesus did the work that God has given to him. And Jesus was glorified on the cross. And that in many ways was the ultimate display of glory. And so now I want us just to note what the glorification of the cross was and is. What was going on here? And and from this passage, we we, we see three reasons for Jesus being glorified on the cross. Three results of glory coming out from the cross. In verse 2 it says, Since you've given him all authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you've given. And this is eternal life, that they know the know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. 
We see here that the glorification of the cross is seen in that Jesus has authority over all flesh. Now this statement could be a bit confusing because we, we, can, we can almost think of flesh being all mankind, but it's, it's not referring to that. What we're, what we're seeing here is the sinful nature. Jesus has authority over sinful nature, over carnality, over fleshliness, carnal-mindedness, over sinfulness. You see, Jesus, what was Jesus defeating on the cross? He was defeating the flesh, the sin, the very fact that we've been made alienated from God because we've fallen short of his glory because of sin. Right back to Adam and Eve at the very, very beginning, the fleshliness, the carnality was there and they ate the fruit that they were told not to. And that fleshly carnal mindedness is seen throughout humanity and Jesus on the cross was making good what man had made bad. Man's sin and rebellion separates them from God. But the cross is where God's mercy and wrath met. The wrath of God was poured out on his own son who did not deserve that wrath because he'd done the works of God and lived a perfect life. And in his wrath being poured upon him, mercy could be given to those who did not deserve mercy. The transaction was completed and so Jesus has authority over flesh. Jesus has authority over sin because our sin has received God's wrath as Jesus took our sins upon himself. And we receive God's mercy because Jesus paid for our atonement. The forgiveness we get is not of someone who's just forgetting a past misdemeanor. The forgiveness we get is because Christ has paid the price for that sin. He has authority over all flesh because he was glorified on the cross when he paid for the sins of his people. And we see a, a, another glorification of the cross in that he has, there's a people that belong to Jesus. Everyone is born into this world, is born under and in the curse of sin. We've all sinned, we've all fallen short of the glory of God, we're all born in iniquity and sin. But there is a fact that God has his people, and these people are saved by grace, and these people are brought into the kingdom, and God had a plan to save. And Jesus executed that plan on the cross. If there was no cross, there would be no Christian faith. If there was no cross, there would be no way that we could be made right with God. The only way that we can be made right with God, the only way that God can have a people for himself, the only way that Jesus can have people that belong to him is because of the glory of God the cross. The horror of the cross made the glory possible. And that glory is Jesus' death on the cross, followed by his resurrection and ascension, assures that God's people have been saved. And like I said, the fact that Christ is sat at the right hand of God now assures us that the sacrifice is complete, assures us that the transaction has been made and there are a people that belong to God. And that's part of the glorification of the cross. But these people that are known, who, who know God through Jesus, these people that have come into the kingdom, they're given eternal life. Uh, and the glorification of the cross is eternal life that Jesus gives 
to his people as we see here in this verse 2. And this is eternal life. What is this eternal life? It's been given to all who have been given to him. And this is it, that they know the only true God and Jesus Christ who has been sent. Jesus on his work on the cross has made a way for his people. And that way has made his people right with God. And those people that were spiritually dead are now spiritually alive and have eternal life. God is glorified through Jesus when we who deserve eternal death will receive eternal grace and eternal life. And we will be with God forever and ever and ever. Amen. The glorification of the cross is seen in the eternal life that is granted to God's people. Are you assured of that eternal life? Do you know that eternal life for yourself? Do you know that your sins have been forgiven by God through Jesus paying the price for them? If you don't, that's what you need to search out. That's what you need to seek. You need to come and ask the Lord to give you the faith to believe. You need to repent You need to come to the Lord in that way. And if we know the Lord in that way, then we should be living to his glory. See, my last point, and in closing, I just want us to consider this, the chief end of, the the chief end of. See, Christian friend, your salvation is not all about you, that there is a cheap of the gospel nowadays that makes us individuals almost the hero of the transaction and it seems as though we are all about what salvation is all about but it's not salvation affects us in the fact that we are saved but salvation is all about God's glory and the chief end of Jesus's saving work the chief end of our salvation is the glory of God. Jesus is to glorify the Father. Jesus' glorification on the cross wasn't saved sinners. Jesus' glorification on the cross was bringing glory to God by saving sinners. We've got to get that in the right order. We have to get it in the right order because it is all about God's glory. And, And these first five verses where yes Jesus is praying for himself he's praying that he will be able to be glorified so that God is glorified God is glorified the big thing here is God being glorified the big aim of Christ is bringing glory to God the father the big story of the cross was not our salvation the big story of the cross was God the king of kings and the lord of lord being glorified by the plan that he brought into being before time began, being perfectly executed. And it was to his own glory. Our salvation is not so much about Jesus wanting us in heaven, but it's about God's glory. And the result of that is we will have eternal life and we will enjoy him forever. But Jesus' work of salvation was not primarily about you or about me, but it's primarily about God's glory. And we are blessed to be brought into it and we can delight in it. But we should not be delighting in it for our own sakes. We should be delighting in it that we are part of God's glory. And we are glorifying God by the fact that we have been made right with God through Jesus. This is about God's glory. And so just as the chief end of Jesus is to glorify the Father, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Now get this. Yes, we are to enjoy him forever. That's eternal life. But that's second. The chief end of man is to glorify God, glorifying first, eternal life second. God first and us Second, this is what Jesus was wanting. This is what his prayer was about. This is what this 
first five verses about it's about God being glorified yes the result is that we have eternal life through the Lord Jesus Christ but the fact that we have our sins forgiven is so that God is glorified and so can we pray these first five verses like Jesus is this a model prayer for us and in one way no absolutely not because we're not going to glorify God on the cross to give God's people eternal life that alone is Christ's work and that alone is something that he can pray for but there is a way in that this prayer, these first five verses, resonate with us. And there is a parallel in which we as God's children should be praying this. Think about the context. The context is that God's overcome. The context is, in this world, you will have tribulation. Jesus' glorification was on the cross. We will bring glory to God on the cross too. Now how does that work? Because I've already said we don't die on the cross for the sins of God's people. No, we don't. But firstly... We die in Christ on the cross. The old man, the old sinful man is killed and is died. And we are raised anew. The picture of baptism is being born again. We die in Christ and we are raised alive anew. And so in that sense, we are glorified on the cross. We bring glory to God as we die in Christ on the cross. Our salvation in Christ on the cross will glorify God the Father. But secondly, we are to take up our cross. That's where we had that reading in Mark. And in Mark chapter 8 and verse 34, it says like this, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And what is this cross in the world you will have? Tribulation. Our hardships, our persecution, the everyday cross of life is to God's glory. Friends, the persecution, light or heavy, the illnesses that you have, the sufferings, the hard times, the the, the mocking, the, the, the fighting against sin and temptation, you're actively putting your old human nature to death, the battles you have against habitual sins, the battles you have against sins that so easily beset you, you're losing friends for Christ's sake, your cross is to his glory, and so in that sense, you can and you must pray these five verses you see we can ask God to help us take up the cross so that we may glorify the father we may ask God to help us to see the glory in our cross as it glorifies the father we have the privilege of walking in Christ's footsteps and as we walk suffering our personal cross as we walk dying to ourselves and dying in Christ on the cross we will bring glory to God and we cannot do that without God's help and how do we get God's help by praying and so friends although 
the absolute context of these first five verses is not for us, it's for Christ. There is a principle that we should be praying for. And that is that we will bring glory to God in dying on the cross of Christ through Christ and by living in his resurrection through Christ to his glory and your glory and God's glory forevermore amen and ultimately when we go to glory we'll be with Jesus for all eternity we'll be with the father for all eternity and we will glorify God in a new way that this broken sinful world and our broken sinful old Adamic self won't let because we will be made anew and we can look forward to that and God will be glorified then anew Amen let's pray Heavenly Father we thank you for what Jesus was prepared to do for your glory and we thank you that through God being glorified, we've benefited in an amazing sense with eternal life. And so as we know that eternal life of the Lord Jesus Christ through his death and resurrection and ascension, we ask Almighty God that you'd help us to live lives that bring glory to your great and holy name. May you help us, O Lord God, to deny ourselves and to take up our cross and to follow you knowing that that is not going to save us. We've been saved by your grace. But that is our reasonable sacrifice. That is what you've called us to do. And by doing so, may you, almighty God, be glorified. And as we think of these things, we realize that we haven't got a hope of being able to do them by ourselves. And so just as Jesus came to you, asking that you would help him to glorify himself and to be glorified and bring glory to you we pray O lord god that you would enable us to glorify you through our taking up our cross and walking in your paths we ask this in jesus namesake amen we're going to